From New York, this is Democracy Now! On UNRWA, we were deeply concerned by the allegations that uh, were made about the participation or involvement of some of its employees in, the, in October 7th. Unrise in crisis after donor countries cut funding following Israeli allegations against the UN agency without providing evidence. Amid a humanitarian catastrophe in Gaza, we'll speak with former UNRWA spokesperson Chris Gunners. Then, Senegal is in the midst of its worst political upheaval in decades after the president postponed this month's election. We'll get the latest. And Io Capitano. A new Oscar-nominated film follows young Senegalese migrants on their journey from West Africa to Italy. If you pilot the boat, you can both leave for the price of one. I've never done that. I don't even know how to swim. You want to let us die here, in the middle of the sea. We'll speak with the filmmaker and the Senegalese man whom the film is based on. All that and more, coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Nermeen Sheikh. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has rejected a proposal by Hamas for a three-phase ceasefire where Hamas would release all hostages in exchange for Palestinian prisoners. Hamas is seeking an end to the Israeli assault and for all Israeli troops to leave Gaza. On Wednesday, Netanyahu said the war on Gaza would continue and ordered Israeli forces to prepare to attack the southern city of Rafah. I would like to emphasize again that there is no solution other than total victory. At a news conference yesterday, released hostages pleaded with Netanyahu to prioritize the release of remaining captives in Gaza. This is Adina Moshe, a 72-year-old grandmother who'd been held hostage in Gaza for 49 days. I'm very afraid that if you continue on this path to dismantle Hamas, there will be no more hostages to release. Despite Netanyahu's vow to continue the assault on Gaza, truce negotiations are continuing. A Hamas delegation is in Cairo today for talks with mediators from Egypt and Qatar. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken has wrapped up his Middle East trip after visiting Israel and the occupied West Bank, where he was met by Palestinian protesters. Health officials in Gaza say Israeli attacks since October 7th have now brought the death toll to nearly 28,000. This comes as the U.N. is warning the risk of famine in Gaza is, quote, increasing by the day. The Palestine Red Crescent Society says they still have no news about six-year-old Hind and two of the group's rescue workers who disappeared 10 days ago while attempting to reach her. The child was last heard from while in a car which came under attack by Israeli fire. Six of her relatives were killed while in the vehicle. Hind's mother spoke out this week, imploring international actors to help locate her missing child. Every second, every second I wait for my daughter. If we hear an ambulance, we think it's Hind. If we hear people coming over, we think it's Hind. Every crash, every gunshot, every bombing, every missile I hear, I think if it's happening next to my daughter or directly to her or to the medics that went to her. 
Earlier today, the Palestine Red Crescent Society said another member of its rescue team, Mohammed al-Omari, was killed, bringing the total number of its aid workers killed by Israel's attacks to 12. Meanwhile, the family of a Palestinian-American woman is calling on U.S. officials to help free Samahir Ismail after she was forcibly taken from her home by Israeli soldiers in the occupied West Bank in the middle of the night Monday. Ismail is a resident of Louisiana. Her Congress member, Troy Carter, said Tuesday he's contacted the U.S. Embassy and the State Department in hopes of securing her release. In news from Iraq, the United States has assassinated a senior commander of Kataib Hezbollah militia. A U.S. drone attack in Baghdad reportedly killed Abu Bakr al-Sadi and two other members of the Iran-aligned group, which the U.S. believes was involved in the recent drone strike on a base in Jordan that killed three American troops. The government of Iraq condemned the U.S. drone strike as a, quote, clear aggression and violation of Iraqi sovereignty. Meanwhile, Israel attacked the Syrian city of Homs on Tuesday. According to the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights, the attack killed 10 people, including at least six civilians. In other news from the region, Saudi Arabia has reaffirmed it will not establish diplomatic relations with Israel until an independent Palestinian state is recognized. Protests against the war are continuing throughout the U.S., Here in New York, at least 100 Jewish-American activists and their allies were arrested Wednesday as they blockaded a road on President Biden's motorcade route as he attended fundraisers. In Chicago, 33 people were arrested as they blocked entrances to the Woodward manufacturing plant, which makes military equipment that has been used by Israel in Palestine. In California, Code Pink and other activists blocked an entrance to the Travis Air Force Base in Fairfield. It's our responsibility when our government is so horrendously breaking international laws to step up and say no. Not in our name, not with our tax dollars. No weapons to Israel. Code Pink activists who were arrested during a previous action at the Travis base will be arraigned later this month. The Senate adjourned Wednesday after failing to advance the contentious $118 billion border package. Republicans, who demanded the hardline immigration measure in exchange for funding for Ukraine and Israel, U-turned on the bill after Donald Trump directed them to reject it. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer slammed Republicans and Trump for sowing chaos in legislative business. There's one other person besides Donald Trump who is rooting for chaos in the Senate. It is Vladimir Putin. If we fail in this moment, if we abandon our friends in Ukraine to Vladimir Putin, history will cast a shameful and permanent shadow on senators who block funding. It is a matter of the highest national urgency that we get this right. Schumer said he would call a separate vote today on military funding for Ukraine, Israel and Taiwan without any border provisions. As the $118 billion border bill failed Wednesday, more than 800 faith leaders and groups called on Congress to pivot to a more humane immigration package, quote, that respects the sacred dignity of all people. 
President Biden is sending a delegation to the swing state of Michigan today to meet with Arab and Muslim leaders amid growing opposition to U.S. support for Israel's war on Gaza and to Biden's candidacy. Dearborn Mayor Abdullah Hamoud, who previously refused to meet with Biden's campaign manager, announced Wednesday he's joining over 30 other Michigan officials who are vowing to cast an uncommitted vote in the state's primary on February 27th. The effort is being led by the group Listen to Michigan, which is headed by Congress member Rashida Tlaib's sister, Leila El-Abid. In other election news, Democrat Marianne Williamson has suspended her presidential campaign against Joe Biden. Pakistan cut off cell phone and Internet service earlier today, just as voting began in a national election marred by a controversy. Opposition candidates say the telecommunications cutoff is just the latest move by Pakistan's military-backed interim government to rig the election. Pakistan's interior ministry said the move was needed to, quote, mitigate potential security threats. On Wednesday, a pair of bombings outside campaign offices in the province of Balochistan killed 30 people. In the Democratic Republic of the Congo, tens of thousands of people continue to flee violence in the east of the country as M23 rebels advance toward Goma, the capital of North Kivu. M23, which is accused of having ties with Rwanda, reportedly surrounded the city of Sake, considered the last line of defense before reaching Goma. Many in eastern Congo have been forced to flee multiple times amid mounting violence from some 120 armed groups that operate in the region. This is an internally displaced person. There was a lot of gunfire at home. The M23 had arrived burning the houses. They made us give them all the money. Some of us even lost our children. There were many dead and wounded. When they entered a house, they took everything, killed people, and took away livestock. That's what made us flee from our home to here in Sake. At the beginning of last week, we fled from Shonga to Kirosha, and it was on Sunday that we left Kirosha to come here. During a soccer match this week at the Africa Cup of Nations, the DRC's national team sought to bring attention to the largely ignored humanitarian disaster back home. Players held one hand in front of their mouths while pointing two fingers to their temples during Congo's national anthem. The Environmental Protection Agency announced its tightening regulations on soot. Breathing in excess fine particulate matter can lead to asthma attacks, cancer and heart and lung disease. It's been linked to anywhere from tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of premature deaths in the U.S. per year. The new rule will lower the amount of allowed fine particulate matter in the air from 12 micrograms per cubic meter to 9 micrograms. And scientists from the European Union say average global temperatures over the past 12 months exceeded 1.5 Celsius above pre-industrial levels for the first time, marking a grim new milestone in the climate crisis. Scientists say last month was the hottest January ever recorded. Temperature records have now been broken for eight months in a row. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Nermeen Sheikh, joined by Amy Goodman. Hi, Amy. Hi, Nermeen, and welcome to our listeners and viewers around the country and around the world. Fears are growing in Rafah over an imminent Israeli ground invasion after Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu rejected a Hamas proposal for a ceasefire on Wednesday and ordered the military to attack the southernmost city in the territory.
Over 1.2 million Palestinians are sheltering in Rafah after being displaced in the Israeli assault. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres said a ground invasion of Rafah would, quote, exponentially increase what is already a humanitarian nightmare with untold regional consequences, he said. Aid agencies are warning of famine amid profound food shortages, with a quarter of million people in Gaza already starving. The healthcare system has collapsed, and the lack of water and sanitation has prompted outbreaks of illness and disease. Most of the residents in Gaza have been internally displaced, with more than half the population sheltering in facilities run by UNRWA, the UN Agency for Palestinian Refugees. Despite being the largest humanitarian agency in Gaza, UNRWA says it may run out of funds by the end of the month after at least 18 states or institutions, including many of the agency's biggest funders, announced they were suspending their donations last month. The cuts came after the Israeli government accused several UNRWA employees of participating in the Hamas attack on October 7th. Israel made the allegations in a document it provided to foreign governments, which apparently contained no direct evidence of the claims. Several news outlets, including Britain's Channel 4, The Financial Times and Sky News, have all reported the document provided no evidence to support the conclusions that the agency's staff were involved in the October 7th attacks. Meanwhile, Australia's foreign minister said to Today, she did not have all the evidence about the allegations and that she was working to bring an end to the suspension of funds. The government of Canada has also not seen any evidence to back up Israel's claim, according to CBC News. UNRWA is set to lose $65 million in funding by the end of February as a result of the cuts, according to The New York Times. The agency relies on government contributions to fund its operations in occupied Palestine, as well as in Jordan, Syria and Lebanon. For more, we're joined in London by the former spokesperson for UNRWA, Chris Gunnis. He's now the director of the Myanmar Accountability Project. Chris Gunnis, welcome back to Democracy Now! If you could begin by responding to this news about UNRWA, possibly uh, running out of funds by the end of this month, losing $65 million. It's extremely sad and it's extremely regrettable because UNRWA wants nothing more than to work as it's done for decades with its donors in a very cooperative relationship to restore funding. UNRWA has taken robust and resolute action. The Commissioner General, Philippe Lazzarini, sacked these workers even before the external investigation and the internal, the OIOS report in New York, even before that had barely started. This was resolute action as part of a zero-tolerance policy. And it's with regret, I say, that I hope that the donors get onto the right side of history and get onto the right side of humanitarian principles and international humanitarian law. And I say with regret that it's possible, at least, that even the Genocide Convention, which calls on state parties, including most of these defunders, to prevent genocide. And what is happening is that this starvation, which the UN correctly says is breaking out, the uh, UN assesses that it's possible that more people will die of starvation than the actual military assault. So it's with great regret I say the donors need to come back into the fold. And just if I can give you just one example, we're seeing in the New York Times these appalling pictures of these Abu Ghraib style humiliating actions by individual Israeli soldiers. Will American officials, will American audiences judge the Israeli army by the action of a few? No. It will judge the Israeli army by the response 
of the Israeli army to these appalling, appalling images. And I say that is the basis upon which UNRWA should be judged, not the actions which remain entirely unproven, as we now stand, against a few bad apples. It must judge the agency by how it responds. How has the agency responded? With robust and resolute and swift action as part of zero tolerance policy that is inculcated in the agency, and it's been done in partnership with the donors. This is a failure, not of UNRWA. If it's a failure, it's a, a failure of the donor community as well that's been working so closely. And even Mr Blinken, the UN Secretary of State, has said that the Americans have not been able independently to corroborate this evidence of the, what I'm calling and what is now established in the international discourse, the dodgy dossier. That's a reference to the dossier, the intelligence dossier, upon which Mr Blair, former British Prime Minister, took Britain to war in Iraq. It was a dodgy dossier. Do the donors want to be judged by history as potentially adding to a starvation, complicity potentially uh, with the genocide against the, the crime of the crime of crimes genocide? No, they need to come back onto the right side of history and of the law and of humanitarian principles and immediately resume the funding of UNRWA. That's the logical, that's the humane, that's the compassionate thing for the donors to do. Chris Gunnis, can you talk about what UNRWA does, how large it is? Um, and I mean, you talk about this Israeli dossier. We just saw CBC said the Canadian government hasn't seen the evidence of this. Um, the U.S. government says they haven't seen actually the evidence uh, where they're talking about something like nine or 12 UNRWA employees of what? 13,000 in Gaza, over 30,000 overall. Talk about the history of UNRWA. I think it's important in conceiving of UNRWA, both historically and its activities today, to think of it not as an aid agency, but as a government. So UNRWA runs in Syria, Jordan, West Bank, Gaza and Lebanon schools, 550 schools, sorry, schools for 550,000 students. UNRWA's primary health clinics have 7 million patient visits a year. UNRWA has nearly 2 million food recipients across the region. That's the core budget. That's, um, that's the, 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 the education, relief and social services and the primary health. As well as that, UNRWA has emergency programs. So UNRWA does these core services, education, health, relief and social services for as many as six million Palestine refugees across the region in some of the most vulnerable, isolated, fragile communities. But when emergencies happen, for example, the Gaza war, UNRWA has to keep these life-saving, st regionally stabilizing services ticking over while it turns to the emergency. And that's what it's done historically. It was, became operational on the ground in May 1950. And as its title suggests, it did relief, humanitarian relief for the 750,000 people who fled or were forced from their homes fleeing the 1948 war. And it also did works. It did um, job creation programs, if you like. But when it became apparent that the Israeli government was not going to grant them what the Universal Declaration grants all people, which is the right to return home, UNRWA then realised that it had a huge refugee population whose children needed education, that needed primary health, that needed all sorts of services. So UNRWA gradually grew in response to the humanitarian need of the refugees that UNRWA was serving. Cut to today, huge education program. That's the, the biggest program. And by the way, offering children around the Middle East an escape from their 
the, the drudgery um, and the isolation, the vulnerability, the fragility, the marginalization, and offering them the chance to be citizens of the world, to put their refugee status behind them, rather than perpetuating this refugee status, which, you know, that's an accusation that's often thoughtlessly thrown at UNRWA. UNRWA offers refugees an escape from that narrative and that kind of life, which is why it is such a tragedy that based on a dodgy Israeli dossier, this huge existential crisis has been triggered within UNRWA, perhaps the worst in its history, and the donors have become complicit. As Penny Wong, the Australian uh, foreign minister, has, has said, as you've just quoted in the news, she hasn't seen the evidence. No donor has seen the evidence because as of now, the evidence simply does not exist. It, there's nothing that links these dozen or so former UNRWA workers, and I stress the word former, with the alleged crimes. So let's get the funding resumed. Let's avoid a humanitarian, a, a mass starvation. And to be clear, starvation is a massacre in slow motion. And that slow motion massacre has already begun. The donors need to realise the enormity of what they've unleashed and come back immediately into the fold where UNRWA will embrace them and will work with them to deal with these issues as it has always done throughout its history. I wanted to go to the news conference that uh, Secretary of State Tony Blinken held yesterday in Tel Aviv. Um, he, a few journalists got to ask questions, and this was the question on UNRWA. On UNRWA, look, the, we were deeply concerned by the allegations that uh, were made about the participation or involvement of some of its employees in the in October 7th. And it's imperative that, as the UN has said it's doing, that there be a thorough investigation, that there be clear accountability, and that there be clear measures put in place to make sure that um, this can't happen again, this, uh, that personnel working for it uh, were not in any way involved in terrorism or the events of October 7th. Um, we know that the work that UNRWA performs, the functions that it performs, have to be preserved because uh, so many lives are depending on it. And I wanted to go back to Washington, D.C., where Corinne Jean-Pierre, the White House press spokesperson, was asked about the fact uh, that... Channel 4, Sky News, and the Financial Times found no evidence of UNRWA involvement in the October 7th Hamas attack. One more question on Gaza. Um, did the White House receive an ironclad evidence that actually the UNRWA staff member, 12 of them, were involved in the October 7th attack? Because four news organizations, including Financial Times, Channel 4, and Sky News, yeah. found no evidence to support the Israeli claim. They said actually what they provided was just cell phone messages and uh, cards that being found after Is Israel that went UNRWA? to this. Yes. Well, so um, where yeah. are you in the process of, re of reviewing uh, that? And second, considering the disaster humanitarian situation in Gaza, mm -hmm. what's the alternative if you wait? if you're waiting for the results to come out or the review to come out. As you know, there's an investigation happening, so we're going to let that investigation move forward. And look, um, you know, funding for Palestinian civilians is a, is a team effort. 
Uh, and so, for example, while we continue to provide funding to organizations like WFP, uh, other countries may continue to fund UNRWA, uh, which is their own sovereign decision. That is their right. So that's Corinne Jean-Pierre saying um, that they think that they're continuing the investigation, yet they've already cut the funding. Meanwhile, Australia, who did also defund, says they are now reevaluating. Chris Gunness, you have called the cutting of aid to UNRWA, the U.S. most important, overwhelmingly gives more than any other country, immoral and illegal. Um, why illegal? Because it's very clear that international humanitarian law, which expressly prohibits the use of humanitarian aid, food aid, as a political weapon. And the Genocide Convention makes it an obligation on state parties um, to prevent genocide. And if you don't prevent genocide, then you are guilty of violating the convention. And the fact that mass starvation is already breaking out suggests that the, the Genocide Convention is being violated. But if I may, Amy, just return to some of the things Mr. Blinken said. Notice, I mean, let's be forensic about this. He used the word allegation, not evidence. Now, there is a vast gaping gap between allegations, which anyone can make, frankly, and evidence, which needs to be corroborated. And the fact that the American intelligence services the best, allegedly, certainly the best resourced, I should say, in the world, has not been able independently to corroborate this information which has triggered um, this huge crisis. That is, I think, very, very revealing. It's also revealing, incidentally, at the end of that soundbite, you heard that Mr Blinken saying UNRWA's work is indispensable. And I think we can talk about this whole, this whole idea of replacing UNRWA. But you heard the spokeswoman um, talking about accountability. Well, let's look at what UNRWA's done. Even before the internal UN at the highest level investigation had barely started, and certainly before the external investigation had barely started, UNRWA took robust action against this. It has in place, and it's worked for years with the donors, accountability frameworks and mechanism staff are screened. The very fact the Israelis know these names is because UNRWA, as part of the zero tolerance policy and its commitment to neutrality, passed on to the Israelis last May, let's be precise, the entire staff list of UNRWA in Gaza and the West Bank in digital form to the Israelis. It had already been run through the Security Council's terrorism list and Israel didn't come back with a single complaint. It was only until after the ICJ ruling, the day after the ICJ ruling accusing Israel of plausible genocide and, 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 and the headlines were, we all saw them, that the Israelis leaked this. So what I would say is the news management is unravelling it's been exposed. And what we're now seeing is the spotlight turning to the donors. And I would like to see some proper investigation into the frameworks that are there for the donors who are accusing UNRWA of politicization. I would like to say, what are the donors doing in a, in a, in a, a, um, a way which is accountable um, and, and which is transparent to show to the world how they ring fenced their humanitarian decision-making process and to keep it immune from politics because they're accusing UNRWA of 
politicizing, weaponizing. You know, there's all this accusations around UNRWA's neutrality. What about the donor neutrality? Because it looks increasingly as if the donor community, based on a very dodgy dossier, was doing Israel's political bidding. We heard Mr. Netanyahu, we've heard him say several times that he would like to see UNRWA destroyed, dismantled. And it looks horribly, and I say this with deep regret, that the donors are, on the face of it, going along with that Israeli scheme to dismantle UNRWA, which is what I say, they can reverse that. They can reverse that this moment by coming back and saying it was a dodgy dossier and we don't have the facts. They're now openly saying they don't have the facts. They need to come back and acknowledge what is actually happening. It was a piece of news management. Treachery happens in wars. It happens, you know, that's that's what goes on. Misinformation, lies, the truth of, is the first casualty for all of that. That's what's happened here. The truth appears to have been the first casualty. The donors have made this precipitous, regrettable, I would say illegal and disproportionate decision to defund UNRWA. That can be reversed immediately by the donors coming back. And I would urge them to do this because, you know, judge UNRWA by its response. Just as I say, judge the IDF, I say to American audiences, judge the IDF by its response to these Abu Ghraib pictures, judge UNRWA by its response. Commissioner General Lazzarini has been swift and resolute as part of a zero tolerance policy, which, by the way, has worked throughout the region. Do you really think that 33,000 UNRWA workers could be actively doing this humanitarian, human development work across the region if it weren't in, in implementing policies which were absolutely impartial. There's no question that UNRWA would very quickly lose the trust of the communities and the donors if they weren't implementing this zero tolerance policy. And that has to be recognised. It's the, it's the response of UNRWA that donors need to respond to, not a few bad Chris apples. Chris Gunness, I'm afraid we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much uh, for joining us. Chris Gunness, the former spokesperson for the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestinian Refugees, or UNRWA. He's now the director of the Myanmar Accountability Project. Uh, when we come back, Senegal is in the midst of its worst political upheaval in decades after the president postponed this month's election. We'll get the latest. Stay with us. I don't have freedom by them. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Narmeen Sheikh with Amy Goodman. 
We turn now to Senegal, which is in the midst of its worst political upheaval in decades after President Macky Sall postponed this month's election. More than 200 opposition politicians and protesters have been arrested in recent days, and the government has cut off some Internet access. Meanwhile, civil society and opposition groups are calling for a mass mobilization against the delay to the presidential poll. President Sall, whose second term was due to expire in early April, postponed the February 25th vote, citing an election electoral dispute between the parliament and the judiciary regarding some of the candidates. Earlier this week, lawmakers voted to postpone the elections until December. The decision paves the way for Seoul to remain in office until at least the end of the year. Opposition leaders and candidates rejected the decision, calling it a coup. Senegal has never experienced a coup since gaining independence from France in 1960. Foreign ministers from the West Africa bloc, known as ECOWAS, are due to meet for emergency talks today about the crisis. For more, we're joined by two guests. Mamadou Diouf is a professor of African studies and the director of the Institute for African Studies at Columbia University, where he joins us from. And joining us from Abidjan in the Ivory Coast is Usman Diallo, senior researcher for Senegal and the Sahel at the Amnesty International Office for West and Central Africa. We welcome you both to democracy now. I'd like to begin with you, Usman Diallo, if you could respond to this latest news and your uh, assessment of, of why it is that President Saul has postponed the elections. I think uh, President Saul has postponed the elections for very personal reasons that are mainly linked to uh, probably dealings within his, his political party. And what has shocked many Senegalese citizens, uh, whether they are politicians or simple uh, citizens going about their daily activities is the unilateral way in which elections that were due uh, three weeks from now were delayed to December by using force, uh, such as uh, pushing out uh, opposition MPs uh, from the uh, National Assembly Chamber uh, on Monday in order to vote for the election, to, for the delay of the elections. Furthermore, uh, this is uh, just uh, the latest episode in a string of human rights abuses and violations in Senegal. We have seen that the internal, internet access via mobile data was cut off between Sunday and uh, Wednesday morning, and that many protesters were arrested. But uh, since March 2021, at least 56 people were killed while participating in protests in Senegal, and we have around 1,000 people detained uh, in uh, various prisons of the country for uh, participating in elections or calling to protest. So this is a really a uh, downslide in Senegal, a uh, democratic and human rights backsliding. And I think what has irked many citizens uh, about the uh, decision that was uh, announced on, uh, on, 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 on Saturday is that this is uh, the latest red line in which uh, the uh, Republican and Democratic uh, uh, standings of the country is being prom compromised by none other than the president of the republic. I wanted to go to the former Senegalese prime minister, Aminata Touré. Uh, Democracy Now! reached her last night. On Sunday, she was detained for six hours before being released. This is what she had to say. I was a candidate myself, and uh, according to the law, um, there is three ways of uh, collecting sponsorship. Um, you can collect a certain number of, uh, of parliamentarian or mayor, or you go to what is called the citizen sponsorship, which means you have to collect between uh, 44 
1,058,000 1, signatures from voters, which I have done um, because um, I led um, Makisal's um, legislative election list uh, two years ago, so I know how to collect uh, the sponsorship, which I have done. And uh, when we came for the control, I mean, it was a foul play. Um, they couldn't find, they said, 13,000 of my sponsors in the file. I came with the evidence and tell them, here they are in the 2022 file, uh, but they didn't want to hear anything. Um, so uh, Makisal decided that I would not be a candidate. But before that, last year, he removed me falsely uh, from the parliament, uh, which is never... <laughs> You know, and heard uh, on Sunday. Um, I mean, I went to the rally, and the minute I stepped out of my car, I was picked up by the police, and I spent you know hours being arrested, and they released me without telling me um, what was wrong, what, what what are the charges, because there were none. Um, and that's the case for thousands of young kids um, who are protesting in the past months. They are in jail. They're not, um, you know, they don't have a court day. Uh, and, and this is a mess because we are not used to this. I mean, Senegal is known as uh, the most stable democracy in, in, in West Africa. And here is President Macky Sall who's spoiling it. And then we would not let him go. We would not just sit and watch. We will take the street. We will do what we need to do um, to keep the foundation of our democracy solid. Again, that's the former Senegalese prime minister who was arrested on Sunday for six hours, spoke to Democracy Now! yesterday, Aminata Touré, uh, in Dakar, Senegal. Um, we want to bring Professor Mamadou Jeff into this conversation, speaking to us from Columbia University. Um, hundreds of people have been arrested in the last days, but this isn't the beginning of the um, uh, unrest on the ground. Can you respond to what Prime Minister Saul has done? And take us back in time, put this in a context, back to 1960, when uh, Senegal became an independent nation headed by Leopold Senghor. Thank you for having me. And it's true that if you want to understand what is happening right now, we have to put it in perspective and have a kind of long-durée approach uh, since independence, what has happened in Senegal is basically the fact that a political system was created using the resources of the, the colonial and actually the resources also of, of, of Islam, the kind of uh, pre-colonial culture which allow the Senegalese political class to build on the colonial foundation of a state I called an Islamo world of state, a state in which you have segments of the population who had been able to build a power base and keep negotiating uh, one with the other. And it's what the political side, the British political scientist Donald Cruz O'Brien called the Senegalese success story based on a kind of social contract. 
it did not mean that the country was fully democratic, but it was a country in which you had a kind of open society, engagement between different groups, and possibility always to find a solution to the biggest crises. And I think it's what made Senegal a kind of exception. But what we have experiencing since the president Macky Sall was elected is the unraveling of the system. The fact that he has been attacking what has been the basis of the stability of, of, of the country. And the turning point basically is when he was re-elected in 2019, he just began planning a possible third term. And that planning is absolutely evident if you look at all his action from 2019. Unfortunately for him, the Senegalese society, this very resourceful society, has been able to resist a third term. And he was soundly defeated by the mobilization of the youth who had been able to say, we want this regime to respect the Constitution. And the fight for the Constitution forced Macky Sall and his group to finally give up the idea of a third term. But he has been keeping, if you want, an approach which is very repressive, which is unknown in Senegal, an approach of centralization, an approach of actually jailing people, in particular his main opponent. And this is the term of a process, which is a process of systematic destruction of the foundation of one of the few democratic systems in Africa. Jeff, I'd like you to, uh, you know, elaborate on, on why that's the case. I mean, in this moment, there are people who are speculating that uh, there may actually be some kind of military uh, coup in Senegal. Senegal is, of course, as you said, an exception, considered an exception, the only country in West Africa that has not experienced a military coup. So, first of all, do you think that there is a risk that that might happen? And also, what differentiates Senegal uh, in this sense, the relationship? of the military uh, to the government uh, compared to, the, to its neighbors? Yeah, according actually to many scholars who have been paying attention in particular to the military group in West Africa, what, have, what they have shown is that the Senegalese military is a very professionalized group and it's a well-educated group who had been really favored by all the regime since Senghor. And in many cases, times of crises, we know the military did intervene in the process of, uh, in the dialogue process, in the search of a kind of compromise, but without always avoiding 
taking power. And I think that they are still in the same disposition. In 1962, for example, when Senghor was in conflict with the Prime Minister Mamaduja, though the army actually supported uh, Senghor, they did say that politicians should solve the issue, that the army was not going to uh, intervene. And I think that is what is going to happen if the crisis deepens. They will probably say, uh, OK, this is a situation in which uh, the question is not the army taking over, but the army will make sure that the right solution is found. What has changed, again with President Matisal, is today what is called the military police, the gendarmerie in French, is much better equipped probably than the army. And it's a gendarmerie equipped for repression. And, you know, these last 12 years, Matisal has invested more in repressive equipment than in education and health. Usman Diallo, we just have a minute. I want to go back to you in the Ivory Coast. You're with Amnesty International, particularly focusing on human rights. I want to ask you about um, the targeting of journalists and media under uh, uh, the under Saul and particularly one private TV station losing its license after showing protests on the ground, uh, internet being cut off, difficult to reach people on the ground, the significance of all of this and where you see the next election happening. I think those attacks against the press uh, that have occurred over the last three years are very symbolic of the repression against uh, independent voices in Senegal. So uh, just on this Tuesday, uh, the uh, broadcasting license of the TV station Walfwadjeri was t- withdrawn by the Minister of Telecommunications, who criticized them for uh, covering the protest on Sunday. And uh, this is a very symbolic attack because Walf TV is one of the first uh, TV uh, media, med- private media houses in Senegal. And we know that private media houses such as Walfwadjeri uh, and uh, Sud FM have been key in uh, opening up the, uh, uh, the, uh, the democratic voices and uh, paving the way to political uh, change in 2000 and 2012. And beyond that, I think what has been uh, very uh, uh, hurtful to, towards Senegalese peoples and their, and their rights have been this, the uh, recurrent uh, suspension of internet access via mobile data. Uh, so this has happened in... Uh, between Sunday and Wednesday, it, has, it had happened in June 2023. It had happened in March 2021. And every time that there are protests in Senegal, this has become a regular feature of the repression of the regime. And uh, if you look at international texts and uh, rulings by the ECOWAS Court of Justice regarding the case of Togo, they have been very clear that this uh, suspension of access to Internet are attacks against right to information and press freedom. And I think in a general way, uh, the, uh, the press has been attacked and, uh, and, and have been the victim of repression by the current regime. And as well has been uh, all of the institutions. Uh, Professor Duff has talked about the army, which has been under stress, but also the constitutional court, 
uh, whose uh, uh, rulings are final according to the Senegalese constitutions, but whose legitimacy has been uh, uh, put, uh, has been criticized and undermined by the actions of the president. And I think all of those contribute to the current stress, the anger, and the uh, mobilization that we are seeing among the Senegalese citizenry. Thank you so much, Usman Diallo. We will continue to follow the story. Uh, Amnesty International Senior Researcher for Senegal and the Sahel and Professor Mohamedou, uh, Professor Mamadou Diouf, a professor of African Studies and director of the Institute for African Studies at Columbia University. And, and the next, a new Oscar-nominated film follows young Senegalese migrants on their journey from West Africa to Italy. We'll speak with the director and the person who was part of the inspiration for Io Capitano. Back in 20 seconds. Capitano by Andrea Fari, featuring Sedu Sar. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. I'm Narmeen Sheikh with Amy Goodman. We end today's show with the new Oscar-nominated film, Io Capitano, which follows young Senegalese migrants on their journey from West Africa to Italy. This is the trailer. We want to go to Europe. Stop counting. Think about your becoming a big star. White people will be asking for your autographs. Mom, I have to tell you something. You have to stay here and breathe the same air as me. lost your mind? The guide is leaving. If we lose him, we'll die in a desert for sure. We're in Libya. Give us your money or it's jail. I'm scared. I won't see my mom again. I want to see her to ask her to forgive me. If you pilot the boat, you can both leave for the price of one. I've never done that. I don't even know how to swim. You want to let us die here, in the middle of the sea?
That's the trailer for Io Capitano, which is up for an Oscar for Best Foreign Film. We're joined now by the film's award-winning director, Matteo Garone, as well as Mamadou Kwasi, whose journey as an African migrant to Europe is the basis for Io Capitano. Welcome to you both uh, to Democracy Now! Uh, Matteo Garone, congratulations on this absolutely beautiful film. If you could begin by explaining uh, the inspiration for the film and your decision to tell this story of migrants from the perspective of the migrants themselves, rather than from the perspective of a European country receiving them, which is what uh, films on migrants have all done, so far as I know. Yeah, well, first of all, thanks for inviting us. And um, we, we decide to, to tell this story, uh, starting from the idea to make a sort of reverse shot. So to put the camera instead than as we usually see on the news from our point of view, we are habit and used to in Europe, in Italy, to see only the last part of the, of the journey. When the boat arriving in Sicily and when they succeed to arrive in Sicily, because as we know, in the last, uh, in the last 15 years, 27,000 people have died making this journey. So we are used to see always this ritual count of numbers, you know, people alive, how many people are alive, how many people are dead. And with time, we will get used that are just number. So we wanted to try to humanize this number. We wanted to try to, to give to the, um, to the audience the possibility to live the experience of the journey from the, the, from the point of view of them. So finally to give visual form to a part of the journey that we don't see. That's what we, well, that's what pushed us to make this movie and, um, Making this movie, for me, that I'm Italian, was crucial and fundamental to do it with them. So I've been a sort of intermediator. I worked since the beginning on the script with the people that for real made this journey. And also on the set, on also on the trailer that you've seen, uh, all the extra that are behind the actor are real migrants that made this journey. So on the set, they helped me to recreate this uh, this. Uh, Odyssey, because they are the carriers of the contemporary uh, epic. So uh, they recreate this modern Odyssey with me trying to be authentic, trying to be true for the respect of the people that made this journey, for the respect of the people that died on this journey, and for, for the help of the people that will see this, this movie, especially in Africa, and maybe will be aware about the risk that is going through. Let's we, go to another clip from this. The, Absolutely. Yes, Mama do. Let's go to another clip from this epic film, uh, Io Capitano. Uh, this is the star, uh, Sedu, who's speaking with his cousin about thinking about leaving Senegal. So when you said you wanted to leave, it wasn't a lot of crap? You weren't serious. Look at me. You're scared. It's not that. Admit it. Not at all. Come on, say it. So what's the point? Yes, I'm scared. You see? Okay, Sidu, you don't want to do this anymore. 
Six months we've been preparing. We did so much work to be able to go. And our dreams, I'm not going without you. Me neither. So now what? Europe is waiting for us. Think about your becoming a big star. White people will be asking for your autographs. You'll go on stage like a real star. What do you think? Give me a smile. Smile. So that's a clip from Io Capitano. And it takes you on this epic journey from Senegal through the desert um, across the sea to Italy. Sedu is actually um, uh, based on the life, though not Senegalese, from um, uh, from the Ivory Coast of Mamadou Kouassi, who is also in the studio. Mamadou, if you can talk about what it means to have put your journey um, into this film that is now nominated by for an Oscar that will be seen around the world, why you left your country and took this perilous journey uh, to Europe. Yeah, as you have already seen, thank you very much for this invitation. And um, this film is talking about dream that me and my kids and we ask, we get access to the, um, to know what is going on at the part of the car, uh, the, of the world, for example, we were start as students. We know we learn a little bit about uh, Europe. Uh, we study in the books. We saw it in television. So uh, we found that it is important to discover what has been seen to us in television, in the newspapers about Europe. That Europe is a um, um, a country of right, of human right. So, and even at the same time. A country of dream that there you can dream and you can achieve your dream. So me and my cousin, we walk and we start. We decide to travel, but the only possibility to travel for us is to cross the desert because for us it is dif- difficult to get a visa to travel. So uh, we we took some information from some people, knowing that to get the visa is very difficult. Even to get the appointment in the embassy is sometimes more difficult. So we decided to afford the, um, the journey across the desert. And when we start the journey, we saw that we did a mistake. It's like a circle. As soon as you enter, it's difficult to go back. And we see that it was harder to, to cross the desert because there you will see many people that are dying. Some ladies, boys, people are dying. You will see the body, dead bodies and you can go, cannot even go back. You will discover the reality, the suffering of a human being. And it's not only on the desert. When you arrive in the transit countries like Libya, what you have seen on the movie is true reality. That we have been sold there like slaves. We have been tortured in the prison. People are dying in number. And people are obliged to take the inflatable boat also to cross the Mediterranean Sea. And there, at the same time, people are dying. And so for us, this film has given us opportunity also to express ourselves, to bring uh, this reality all over the world because people are talking, but they don't know before that people entering in Europe, number of people died on the desert, in the Mediterranean Sea, in the prison, people are being sold. Till today, people are suffering in this part of the country. So this film is for us a big instrument to share this information to the world to the huge public to know 
what African people are suffering before they arrive in Europe. Your capital, I think, is the huge instrument to send this message to the world that things uh, have to Mamadou be changed. Mamadou Kwesi, we are to going to continue this conversation uh, and post it on uh, democracynow.org. Mamadou Kwesi, whose journey as an African migrant to Europe is the basis for the new film Io Capitano, and Matteo Garone, the film's director. Democracy Now! is currently accepting applications for a major gift officer. Learn more and apply at democracynow.org. I am Nermeen Sheikh, joined with Amy Goodman.